Welcome back to Ghostly Talk. This is Scott L. This is Amber. And we are starting the year off strong. Happy 2021. Happy 2021. <laughs> yes. Hopefully. Wait, so let's ask Mr. Predicto. Oh, you want to do that yeah, right now? Yeah, let's ask. Let's, Amber's been waiting yeah. all night to do this. In fact, so during the show, act. because I think I had it on, yeah, you, dropped, you might hear a little like, yeah, you, like a little magic sound that sounds right. like Mr. Predicto going off. And then I nudge and roll the ball to the side we, to we, try we, to get it out of the we speaker. We smothered him and put him under a pillow <laughs> or whatever to get um, Mr. Predicto to shut anyway, up. So let's ask Mr. Predicto if the year 2021 is going to go in a more positive direction. Okay. All right. This is all for all the money. All right. One draw and right, that's it. Here we We're go. All right. So what? Definitely not. Oh! <laughs> jerk! Well, guys, you've heard it here. A ghostly talk exclusive. Oh, definitely not. <laughs> we are... Uh, that, oh, that's bothersome. Even Mr. Predicto God. hates life. God. Even Mr. Predicto I have one people. more option I could go with. I have the skull wheel of death thing we could ask. Okay, let's ask the skull wheel. Let's see if wheel. we get a sip. One let's draw. See. Okay, let's see if we get a better answer. If we answer. get two in a row, I have two, um, we're I checking have, out tonight. I have two we're magic done. eight balls in front of me, too. So, I mean, we have four options here to get a good answer. Well, why don't we get, let's do all four of them okay. and, all right. and see how crappy so the year is So, our wheel of death, let's ask the wheel of death um, if 2021 is going to be a better year. Okay. I, it's I, not nope, good. Nope. I think it's saying it's still going to be a, a jerk year. Okay, so we got we have two. The uh, lesser of two evils, but still going to suck. Okay, so let's ask the magic love ball. So we have a magic yep. love ball. What magic color? love it's ball. It's a red ball. Yep, it's red. And um, uh, is 2021 going to be right. a more positive year? Um, what does it say, Amber? Whatever you want. Oh, so it's, it's just being po- it's positive thinking. If we want it to be positive. Well, that's a step a in the right year. direction. Okay. And the last. It's just a standard. The classic a standard. standard classic eight ball. Eight ball. Magic eight ball. Will 2021 be a better year? And what does it say? Oh, it is decidedly so. So the eight balls say different. So if we put that on a graph, we start at it's, bare bottom and we yeah, kind of slowly just go a tie. up a hair. It's just a tie. <laughs> yeah, I, I, just, uh, I don't know. I kind of think Mr. Predicto is probably right. <laughs> Well, happy new year, yeah. everybody. Um, happy and, new year. And we did. I'm very happy to say we, we were we're we, starting this year off yeah. very strong. Yeah. And uh, I, I also want to say this real quick because ahead, last year, this was postmarked November 23rd. I want to um, state out loud that we had the nicest thing happen. Uh, we had a listener. Thank you. I know we needed to discuss a that. a card. Yeah. And we, we we're ha- overdue on that, so yeah, we yeah, apologize yeah. in advance for that. And we, ha- we happened to go check our P.O. box that Scott maybe checks twice a year. And so, and so there's a card in there that's like all written fancy and fun and it smells like perfume and there's a dried flower taped to the back. And I'm like, what is this fanciness? And I open it up and there's this beautiful little art card and it's from uh, the artist Christine Humphreys. And she wrote me like the sweetest note ever. And at first, I, really I nice. at first I was like, oh, Scott, I think I have a secret admirer because I thought it was Christian. Well, I, I thought it was Christian Humphreys. Yeah, no, I just because she has to, really fancy writing. I, I talked to Christine and she said, "Hey, I, this was a while ago." And Kristen, uh, Kristen, is it Kristen? I, it's Christine, I, Kristen. Dang it! <laughs> Whatever. Anyway, she's a wonderful artist. She is. She's and yeah, um, we'll gorgeous. also link her up. We well, we we um. We uh we shared her link on our Instagram, 
Um, so you can see some of her we artwork. Did. But yeah, we'll we'll link. We'll share. Make sure to share her too. But uh, thank that, you. We so really much. appreciate yeah. that. Like to get a nice handwritten old fashioned card from well, that someone was for you. I wouldn't who actually said yeah. something nice. Yeah. Um, is that's don't hear really, that really cool. often these days, well, especially in 2020. Yeah. So that was really cool. So onward. Uh, thank you very much for that. That was, that really was very cool. Um, we appreciate it. So yeah, uh, as I said, I'm really happy to say we started the year out very strong. Um, we had on tonight. Oh boy, I'm falling over here. Alessandro me. Keegan. Alessandro. I not, I didn't forget his name. I'm just running out of breath here. Okay. So I'm, I'm falling. I'm, I'm going to die on the air. Oh, well, don't have that. That's not good. <sighs> Do you want me to ask Mr. Predicto if you'll die in the air? Yeah, no, I don't a, want to know no, that. No, we don't want to know that crap. <laughs> we don't want to know Alessandro that. Alessandro Keegan was here, um, uh, and this was I, – I want to tell that really quick. I mean, it was just one of these this, – this gentleman, you come running upstairs, and you're like, you have to look at this artwork. You have to look at this artwork right now. Yeah. And I didn't. I mean, this is really cool stuff. This is amazing. And the rest is history. Yeah, I was like, you have to contact him and get him on the show immediately. And he was nice enough to come. He said, yes, I will. To be our first guest of 2021 <laughs> and have a conversation yeah, with us. Yeah, this is my nerd zone, so I could have talked about all of this for just yeah, hours. Yeah, we, we, had to, we had to just stop it. Yeah, and our focus <laughs> our focus was obviously mediumistic art, Yeah, and which is what Alessandro studies and, you know, typical GT fashion. We go all over the place, and that's perfectly fine because yeah, then the conversation never gets dull. There was a lot of spit. You never know where here. we're going to go. Yeah. Um, and But it was, it, as I told um, Alessandro, that, that's what I'm really excited at myself is when we're kind of just going, ooh, what about this? But ooh, yeah. what about this? Ooh, but what about And that, that's just when the cool ideas are generated. I, that's when I'm really excited about something and someone too, like yeah. Alessandro. And uh, let me read his bio real quick so there's yeah, yeah. some professionalism going on. Okay. Alessandro Keegan is a visual artist, writer, and adjunct professor with a Master of Fine Arts in Painting and Drawing from the School of the Art Institute of Chicago and a Master of Arts in Art History from Brooklyn College. His paintings and drawings, which depict forms that straddle the lines between science, nature, technology, and mysticism, have been exhibited in New York, Chicago, Philadelphia, and the Netherlands. Writings about his work have appeared in Art Forum, Masthead Magazine and Ephemera NYC, as well as journals such as Helvete or Helvet, Helvet, mm-hmm. and Jai Freud. I can't pronounce that in French, so it's like Jean <laughs> Oh my God! He currently lives and works in Brooklyn, New York. Um, we didn't mention this on the show, but he also on his website has a journal uh, that there are three issues you can download, and they are super cool. I just printed them out today. Yeah, and it's called the Speculative Arts Research. Uh, I guess journal. Um, and it's got all kinds of cool stories. So if you like what we were talking about, especially has a story about someone um, actually got to go spend time with the real Vonich manuscript at Yale. Ooh. Do you know what that is, Scott? I've heard it before, yeah. It's like goes back to the 15th century, mm, yeah. and they still haven't been able to translate it or figure it out. Mm. It's super cool. So anyway, there's all kinds of cool, awesome stuff in those. So it's, it's going to be, yeah, it's yeah, going to we'll be. We'll have link, that all linked up. It's going to be Link City for this show. Yeah, I think, and Picture and, City for the next week or two. Yeah. Because I want to share all of his artwork like crazy. Uh, Alessandro was really, really nice uh, and wonderful to spend some time with us and take time to talk to us. Uh, so please, please enjoy our discussion with Alessandro Keegan.
So while I was mindlessly scrolling Instagram one day, I come across an image that just stopped me. And you see a lot of stuff on Instagram, especially if you like looking at art, like art or spooky stuff or whatever. There's a ton of stuff to look at. But this one image just stopped me. And I'm like, what? Who? What? Who did this? I, I What? Who is this guy? And there was something about these images. I, I don't I know a lot of people get like they get upset by abstract art. They're like, I, I could do that. I, you go oh, into whatever. like, you go, yeah. well, sometimes like when we go to the DIA, the Detroit Institute of Art, and you walk into the abstract area and there's just a big red circle. And you're like, <laughs> what? Why is that in a museum? Like I could make that and really go ahead and try and make it because it, of the scale it's on or some kind of gradient they used. Like it's a lot harder than you think it is. Yeah, it's, Plus there's, there's a whole historical con- like aspect and component to that, that movement. But I'm looking at uh, our guest tonight, who is yeah. Alessandro Keegan. I'm looking yeah. at his artwork on Instagram and just like, <gasps> because it, I had like, like a moment. I had it, it had an impact. It like spoke to me. And mm-hmm. I'm like, this is like from another planet. This is like, a, I don't know if he downloaded this from a UFO. <laughs> it's got a language. And it's a lot of it's just shapes. And it is the coolest ever. So then, of course, I learned that in the summer when we were doing nothing and we're stuck inside, that he's going to be participating in this talk through the Brooklyn Antiquarian Art Fair, which a geek like me, I'm like, this is the awesome thing ever. And (laughs) he's doing a talk on mediumistic art and the history behind yeah. it. And I'm like, this is when you yanked me in and said, Hey, I want you to look at this stuff. Yeah. And I was like, I was like this you, is super cool. We got to see if he'll this be nice amazing. enough to come on the show. And he was, and he's here. He's here. We did it. He's we, here. We made it. We did it. <laughs> Welcome Alessandro. <laughs> oh, thank you. Thank you. Amber Rose. Uh, the, the, that's a, that's a good intro there. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. I'm glad you, uh, I'm glad you caught that talk that i gave uh to the brooklyn antiquarian uh book fair yeah that was really cool and there was a lot of there was some artists that i wasn't familiar with a few that i was but i I was taking notes like in in the summer like i'm at school just because i'm a dork like that and um so (laughs) we we want to have you we want to talk to you about mediumistic art because while this show isn't predominantly about the paranormal it's we we talk about all kinds of stuff it is one of our focuses and me being i think we're both artistic people in this room well well try to be yeah (laughs) and so i have a real soft spot for this kind of thing because i feel like a lot of art is can be medium sometimes people don't even know that they're they're channeling something. Well, let, let's lead, let's lead yeah. off with this idea, yeah. Alessandro. If I may ask you, I mean, because it, it's a it's yeah. a it's a it's a concept, a construct that's fascinating to me, right? And I'm gonna take, I'll take us right into the weeds before we even get Woo! started. This will be awesome. Uh, but I mean, <laughs> it is this idea? And I know we're all familiar with this idea, and you know, it's like looking at your your work, for example. Is it's one example, or lots of other artists I've I've experienced. I, I look at what they've done and. And, and I just go, well, man, and, and, that, and that can cross over any type of art, I think, too. Not just, yeah. you know, visual art, but, you know, but music or, 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 or sculpture, whatever, whatever something creative can be, right? And I find myself asking the same question, right? And, it, and it's always the same one. It is, where did that come from? You know, that, yeah, sometimes, where did some, it come from? Yeah, where did it come from? Yeah. Inspiration's weird like that. So... I, what are your thoughts on that before we even dive in, into the whole media, media, mediumistic art uh, side of this thing? Well, yeah, well, Scott, um, that's an excellent point uh, about the idea of where did it come from and how mediumistic art taps into that. Yeah. And I think that's, that's essentially what 
made me uh, become so fascinated by mediumistic art. Uh, it delves into two questions about about life and about art itself, which is, you know, what happens to us after we die? What is the nature of the spirit? And then also, where does art come from? And what is what is the source of our inspiration? Is it from the self? Yeah. Is it from some kind of inner light within the person themselves? Or is it part of some more ineffable, uh, grander uh, power beyond the artists themselves? And uh, I should say, you know, I don't, as I have, you know, I'm an art historian and an artist as well. I teach art history and so forth, and I also have an artistic practice. But uh, delving into mediumistic art, I'm not really trying to answer uh, the question of whether it's real or not, or whether it's genuine or not. But what is compelling to me is that it raises the question of where where does art come from? And what art is and what it what it does for us, you know, and anyway, be beyond uh, art historical concerns, which I think dominate a lot of the academic uh, and institutional conversations about art history and especially abstract art and things like that. Uh, but mediumistic art, which I'll define for you in a second, you know, yeah. um, mediumistic art, though, it comes from outside of that tradition of modernism and the academy and the institutional nature that is, uh, you know, the foundation of museums and uh, academic programs. It comes from outside of that. Yeah. And it offers this idea that, you know, art might be something that is beyond our understanding. Anyway, so that's what I think about that. I think it's a great point. Yeah. Where does it come from? Well, and I, th and, and that, what you just said, I think is really, <laughs> is, is, as vague as it can be, yeah, it, it could. I think it can be beyond our, our understanding. I think I really think it is. Honestly, that, that's the bottom yeah. line. It is beyond our understanding to a certain degree. I think um, it's just what inspiration is, whatever it is. But but mediumistic art, though. Yeah, let's yeah. talk about that. Tell us. Let tell me us define that. Yeah, Please, I should define that because here's the thing. I, um, uh, you know, I'm you know an art historian, and I really want to delve deeply in this topic and the talk that I gave for the Brooklyn um, Antiquarian Book Fair, that was kind of an introduction to the topic. And I think it was really, I was very happy with how it came out, but it didn't dive that deeply into the subject. Mm -hmm. And part of the reason for that is because I think a lot of people don't even know what mediumistic art is, even within the art world and within art academic circles. And it's a, it's a really small niche subgenre of art that sometimes overlaps what's called outsider art or art brute, art raw art, mm -hmm. uh, art that is self-taught. Um, but mediumistic art specifically refers to art that is created by artists who claim that the source of their inspiration or the source of the work that they are making comes from outside of themselves. So usually that's tied in with the history of spiritualism and communicating with spirits. And the idea is that a spirit of a, someone who is deceased might enter into the body or the hands of the artist. Um, but also there's a number of other dimensions of mediumistic art as well. It can be a force of energy that takes possession of the artist. It can be extraterrestrial intelligence is when we get into Paulina Peavy or um, 
or Inel Talpazan, those artists who have extraterrestrial communications. Um, or, you know, there's, there's a lot of other dimensions to it. It's sometimes it's not even the artist is completely possessed, but that they are guided uh, somehow by an invisible force that only they can perceive. Uh, there's a lot of different dimensions, but the unifying thing of mediumistic art is that the source of the creation is not, does not belong to the, uh, to the conscious mind of the artists themselves. They don't take responsibility for the artwork's design. Uh, it's something that really comes from outside of them. Uh, and that sometimes is a point that I always like to stress because this can get confused with a lot of other types of occult or mystical art or transcendentalist art. But uh, mediumistic artists are really special because they don't necessarily take complete credit or sometimes don't take credit at all for the work that they produce. They will claim that it was a vision given to them or that it was some other mind controlling their hands. Yeah. So that's my best effort at giving a definition <laughs> of medium, mediumistic art. I hope that's clear enough. No, that's, that's, that's very clear. And I want to, oh, un good, let, good. let's unpack a couple things from that too. I, yeah. I'd like to. And um, there were a few things that came to mind as you were explaining this. Um, one of the things, that, and Amber, I know you're familiar with this. I'm sure you're familiar with this too, Alessandro, is automatic writing, for example, which is not automatic writing is more or less just writing just words. That's from what, you know, historically, right? But it's the same principle, yeah. I think, is that the idea is that the person's hand is being guided by something else that's telling the hand to write whatever, yeah. right? Go ahead. Yeah, and I, I love that you brought up automatism or automatic writing because uh, that I include that in the realm of mediumistic art. Okay. Um, and yeah, and you know, there's early of course spiritualists who have their hand guided uh, to write things down. Some of it is a little bit more controlled, uh, like with the uh, the spirit uh, patient's worth, uh, who you might be familiar with. Yeah. Oh yeah. Is yeah. A, a spirit. Yeah. In the 19 teens, mm -hmm. and. Those, uh, you know, novels written, you know, by the spirit of uh, Patience Worth were, uh, you know, dictated by Ouija board. So that kind of automatic writing or actually another uh, one who comes to mind is um, James Merrill, who in the 1970s into the 80s did a series of a Pulitzer Prize winning poet who did a series of three book length poems that comprised a, a collection called the Changing Light at Sandover, and he revealed that these books were written entirely using a Ouija board, and he claimed that the planchette had become possessed by this spirit from the first century named Ephraim, and, you know, so there's a lot of examples of literature and writing that are also part of the mediumistic art. It's not just painting, for instance, um, and I think that the automatic gesture, the spontaneous gesture, and uh, and I would also include, uh, you know, glossolalia and the phenomenon of speaking in tongues uh, with mediumistic art as well. Uh, that spontaneity that bypasses the ego and the self and just seems to come from out of the, you know, out of the ether. The other part of this thing that I wanted to ask you about, Alessandro, uh, mm -hmm. yes. is... And I, this is, I mean, it didn't surprise me to hear this. And I think it's so cool is the idea that the artists themselves do not necessarily take credit 
for the work that's being mm-hmm. done. They they take their hat off literally to whatever forces may be, whatever you described. So there's several different ideas, right? That they yes. they they more or less give credit to that. And I find that very, I think that's very humbling, I think, for an artist. Because, I mean, you know, there may be people, let's think about this for a second. And I mean, there may be artists out there that may be doing mediumistic art, right? And they may, maybe they don't know they're doing that. Maybe they just, it just comes to them and they think that they're just brilliant. (laughs) And this is me. This is me. I take full credit. And they may, we don't know, I don't think. Right. What is again? I go back to what is inspiration. Um, you know, where does this come from? And some people may be doing this without even knowing it. Does that does that make sense? Yeah, and I and I absolutely think that it is very possible that maybe there are degrees of if if there is a real phenomenon. I think there's could be several different phenomenon at play in what happens with mediumistic from the psychological to more transdimensional or uh, paranormal explanations. I'm open to all of those possibilities, um, but there could also be degrees of this phenomenon happening all the time. Uh, you know, I myself as an artist, you know, I do a lot of meditation uh, before, during, and after while working and sometimes try to go into a uh, kind of a altered or meditative state I don't call myself a mediumistic artist, but images and ideas do appear to me and kind of come out of that state. And then you also have, you know, terms that are in part of popular language, like the flow state where people feel like they get into some kind of a, a groove while they're working and things just kind of happen for them. And there could be something about the mediumistic experience that artists have that just happens to a lot of artists, maybe to a lesser degree. It's not like a voice is in their head or that they see some kind of light, you know, like Philip K. Dick or something like that. Yeah. Um, but they, they do have something guiding them on a more subtle uh, wavelength. And, you know, actually, I'm, I'm going to just continue on this thought because mm-hmm. you're getting into the more speculative end of this, which I really enjoy getting into. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, beyond the historical, I like to play with the different possibilities, I have also entertained the idea that aside from it being some kind of um, spirit or force that is guiding them, an outer intelligence that is outside of them, I think it's also very possible that there could be some kind of higher self or some um, dormant part of the self uh, in a way that is similar to the it but maybe more like uh you know what some people have said in terms of like the bicameral mind you know that there's some dormant part of the brain that sometimes gets activated during the creation of art Mm -hmm. and this might be directing uh the activities of the artist or the writings or things like that you know Mm -hmm. um but yeah i think i think it does um you know and i think what what is exciting about mediumistic art is also that um a lot of times the history of art is made, and I, and I say this as someone who's an art history teacher, uh, the history of art is made to be kind of about the conversation within art. It's very self-reflexive, self-referential. And, uh, you know, for instance, uh, art history books will talk about artists like Andy Warhol, for instance, making pop art 
as a reaction against expressionism or against uh, modernism, formalism, you know, these ideas that were pushing out popular culture and things like that. And then Andy Warhol was like, no, we're going to make popular culture part of this conversation. Um, And that is the way they talk about it. You rarely see uh, art historical conversations suggesting that there might be some inspiration or some moving force in art that is maybe outside of uh, the academic conversation about art that might be either something new, something beyond our understanding, or something maybe more ancient and more primal. Uh, And I think this also goes towards your point about where does inspiration come from. I feel that mediumistic art is something that is almost close to the most ancient origins of art, artistic creation. Uh, I think of, you know, going all the way back to the caves of Lascaux, the Paleolithic cave paintings uh, in France. And there's a painting on the wall there of a, a man or uh, what looks like a man's body with the head of an animal. And it's this very strange image within those caves. And one theory is that this is a depiction of a shaman going into some kind of altered state. And he's also lying on the ground next to entrails from a bison. And, you know, there's everything that shows evidence of some kind of shamanistic ritual. And then I also think of Aboriginal rock art in, uh, in Australia that shows, you know, these translucent beings from another world and so forth. All of that could be considered some kind of um, predecessor to mediumistic art. A mediumistic art might share some kind of similar origin. Maybe we're we're looking at something that is the very, you know, primordial essence of where art comes from, or something like that, with mediumistic art. Yeah, I love to speculate about these kinds no, of things. No, yeah. and, and it's dude, this is super interesting too. Um, yeah, yeah, you don't hear about that. I mean. Th- I've watched plenty of documentaries on on artists of all different types, right? You know, a lot of music yeah. stuff I'm into, um, and you, know, you never hear that. Like, where does this, where does this come from? Where, where, what is your inspiration? Uh, and no one really tries to answer that question. They just say, "Well, this dude rules," <laughs> or "This this group of people <laughs> rule," or whatever it might be. You don't you don't really get into that. Well, idea. Well, and there's more of a zeros and ones looking at it, like Alessandro said. Like, mm-hmm. well, it's a reaction. Just like I, I'm an English major, and everything was a reaction against the you know, Thoreau and then the next guy and then the next guy and the next guy's reacting against this person. It's a domino effect. And it is interesting to look at how people who might not even be influenced by each other because they live in different countries, they don't know each other, but somehow they're still coming up with the same brand new, what seem brand new concepts that are coming into play. Like, Mm. like for example, like um, Helma Offklint doing her mm-hmm. thing and then can like doing it before Kandinsky starts doing his abstract yeah. thing. So you have a, a, a female painter, Swiss paint, not Swiss, she's Swedish painter doing, doing her thing. And mm-hmm. then, you know, before Kandinsky and she, and, and, and I know with Helma, I know probably uh, Alessandro can definitely go into to, to talking about her. Cause she's super cool for people that don't know anything yeah. about her, <laughs> but, um, it's like where do people tap into start tapping into these ideas where their artwork starts jet like all looking si- like a little similar, well, even it's though got they're its not own, anywhere it, oh, you, you know mean, near each other really. Well, it's got it's got earmarks. Yeah, it'll have certain earmarks that that that, that set you like off. Like there's I just guess. something in like the collective unconscious stewing around. You know, it's just a big, big I, giant crock yeah, pot of ideas. I think ideas. that's a very yeah. <laughs> Sorry to cut you off. No, I, I think good, that that's good. a very. I think that's a very interesting. Uh, concept, the idea that it might come somehow from a collective subconscious 
and with Hilma off Clint, you know, I, I have a lot, uh, I have a lot of thoughts about Hilma off Clint. I don't even know where to begin, <laughs> but you're right. She's doing something very similar to Kandinsky and other artists like French Kupka, who's part of this movement called Orphism. And, you know, Hilma often predates them for by about 10 years. Yeah. So she's pretty ahead of the curve. Uh, and some say she's a predecessor to abstract painting, uh, which is, I think, a very strange argument. But, you know, okay, that's great. But it is interesting, though, that somehow all of these artists were kind of hovering around this idea at the t- same time. Whether you think she got orders from the... Uh, you know, high masters that she claimed to have been channeling, you know, to make those paintings or not. Uh, perhaps there was some kind of force moving through the culture. Maybe there's some kind of thing as human beings, we have almost a kind of uh, collective biological mind and it works in unison on a subconscious level. I think that's, you know, an interesting possibility. Well, I um, think, you know, that this I, that idea too uh, well, for example, and I don't want, we're, we're going to go way out there now. Dreams, for example. Go out. Dreams, right? Um, yeah. I've often, you know, I've had, I thought I've had strange dreams. I've had plenty of strange dreams. They're very strange dreams. Uh, but a lot of times what, yeah. what they may be, what they are usually is that I may have had a thought of something before I went to sleep. Or most likely I looked at something on my my phone something on social media or I watched a video or something like that. And that thought will, will find its way creeping into my head or my, my subconscious, I guess, and find its way into my dreams. Um, sometimes mm. I, and I, I found myself doing this with some art stuff that I've done too. I've, I've, I've caught myself and, and this mm. is in no way supernatural. I think um, some people, I think they may get a glimpse of something right now. We're talking about stuff that's a lot older than that. Nowadays, of course, the world, you can look at anything on any part of the planet anytime you want now, just with with a device in your hand. Um, So this may be kind of a moot point, but couldn't it be like, because you're saying there's similar earmarks in art we see, right? And what we're saying is that there could be some overlying database kind of floating around that you can maybe access if you you know how to do Mm -hmm. it with your mind. But what if it is just maybe somebody... Getting a glimpse of something, I guess, whatever way it may be. And I mean, I'm going, I'm going way out there with this, but maybe they just got a glimpse of something. That, that's all it takes, I think, is to, to imprint something in your mind. It's just a glimpse of something. If it makes an, if it makes an impression on you, you're not going to forget it, right? So maybe this. Yeah. And I mean, if I'm going too far all over the place, I apologize. But <laughs> it, it's a, it's a thought though on this too that it may not, could not be just supernatural itself. It could be something where just being a human, where you may just see things maybe. Uh, well, no, well, music, a lot of people have <laughs> dreams where they just hear like, do, 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 I'm melting down already. What's and, it? and music, music though. Someone will wake up. There's been a lot of artists out there and I can't think of one directly right now, but ton of them that wake up hearing the tune in their head. And it could be yeah. like four notes or five. And then it ends up being like the biggest song of a century, well, that, you know, but and I, I think when it comes to music though, too, um, I mean, there's certain tones and sounds that can be arranged in certain ways as far as notes are concerned that just feel good, 
they make you feel good or whatever yeah. or they, they 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 pull some kind of emotion it's no different than well, it's no different than than art like visual art at all it's, in my opinion it, if it if it invokes an emotion then it's it's a good mm-hmm. piece of art whether whatever it may be right um but well go, i go i have to say i personally have not really delved too much into the realm of mediumistic music or audio hallucinations being turned into music. I know there are Mm -hmm. other researchers looking into that kind of area. Yeah. Uh, I do know, I thought of two things though, as you were mentioning this though, uh, one of the early pre-spiritualism examples of mediumistic art, uh, that I think is really interesting, uh, predecessor and actually might point towards the origins of where this idea of mediumistic art comes from is uh, the 12th century uh, German mystic Hildegard of Bingen, yeah. uh, who was, yeah, you've probably heard about I her. She was her. an abbess. She lived uh, in a very ascetic lifestyle, uh, you know, devoted to prayer. And she began to have these very vivid and striking hallucinations. They would appear as, you know, images of the cosmos and diagrams of the universe. And she would also have um, spirit and angel guidance that would dictate to her alternative versions of biblical books. Um, But also part of her uh, mystical experiences resulted in uh, musical uh, compositions, choral compositions that were uh, transcribed from uh, hallucinated or envisioned experiences. Okay. and and then the other thing that I thought of while you were talking, about, and she also did some artwork too, which is very interesting as well, but um, although it was more painted under her direction, but the other one I thought of was uh, the 18th century mystic Emanuel Swedenborg, oh, yeah. uh, you may have heard of as well, yeah. um, who had visions of angels and he went to heaven and hell and he saw what happens to the soul after death. Uh, but the reason I thought of Swedenborg is a lot of times his visions, as I read them anyway, I'm not an expert on Swedenborg, but as I've read them, it's really hard to determine whether he is talking about a vision that he perceived while he was awake or a vision that he perceived in a dream or whether he really distinguished between his dreams and his visions. Uh, a lot of the things he describes come out of a, vision, a visionary dream state or a lucid dream state. Uh, and the other thing I was thinking is, you know, as just as things you see during the day might influence you in the dream life, you know, you, you know, whatever spilled coffee on your lap and then you have a dream that you, you know, were on fire or something like that. Maybe there's also something about mediumistic art where the mind does dictate things to you through dreams and you kind of half remember something that you had seen in your mind the night yeah. before and. Yeah. You know, and then you're also talking about the veils. Do they catch a glimpse? You know, I think there's also, you know, a lot that we can, I mean, I don't, uh, you know, this is going into some speculative territory, but, yeah. you know, there is the idea of, you know, uh, both the idea that the universe is some kind of an illusion, the idea of Maya, that it's this kind of illusionary, uh, the idea that everything is solid and material is, is a perception in our mind. Uh, but then there's also uh, the, the sort of Gnostic idea that we live in a kind of false creation and there's a true creation beyond this one. And, you know, you might, and I, and I have to say, I look at artists like William Blake, for instance, who's a, yes. you know, a major early influence in terms of mediumistic art. And a lot of his work, you know, he talks about false deities, false gods. Uh, he has, 
visions of uh, archangels who tell him uh, what to create. And a lot of that has echoes of Gnosticism and the idea that there's some kind of creation beyond this one. So I don't know. <laughs> At the end of the day, I'm an agnostic about what the art... I, I mean, I have my own speculations, but I can't say. I can never say if I really know yeah. uh, what the truth is. You know what? I'll, I'm gonna wanna, I want to just clarify one thing. Also, for me as a as a both as an artist and as an art historian for me it's enough that the artists who i talk about like william blake or um you know uh madge gill or uh you know any of hilma offklind it's enough for me that they claim that their work comes from some other source and then i think we can just look at their claims and the art that they make and their ideas on their own merit uh, I don't. I, I feel like it's not really my place to question whether someone like Hilma Offklimt actually had an experience or not, or whether uh, Wayne Blake had an experience or not. You know, I I don't know. <laughs> right. We can't hook these people uh, up to lie detector machines now. You know, it's like we right. Can't, exactly. Yeah, we, we, all we can do is look back at what they did and and um, appreciate it. But why why do you think in the art world now? mediumistic artists are finally starting to be taken seriously, mm. that academia is kind of not just going, oh, they're just those self-taught or, oh, she was just a female <laughs> bored and doodling. Like they, there seems to be like a, a resurgence or a, a true genuine interest in these artists now. Well, it does seem to be this way. Uh, it does seem that the gates are opening a little bit more to more marginalized ideas about occultism or spiritualism or mediumistic art. I will say this, and I might, I hope I don't come off as being super critical, but uh, there, there isn't that much of a openness to mediumistic art still. I think the idea of mediumistic art being accepted completely as a genre in uh, major museum institutions or, you know, in academia where there's going to be a classic Columbia or something about mediumistic art. I feel like that still has a little bit of a ways to go. I do think that I am hopeful that it will be accepted as a legitimate art form that can be uh, studied and explored and appreciated. But, you know, I, I think, you know, Hilma Ostland is really the most uh, successful artist of the mediumistic art world, I guess, apart from William Blake. But in our current moment, she is really uh, probably the most famous and most popular example. And yet at the same time, I have to say, and I, this is where I hope I don't come off as being too critical, I feel that a lot of the more esoteric, occult a aspects of her work are somewhat downplayed uh, by a lot of uh, what has been written about her. Uh, you know, I saw that movie. I don't know if you saw the movie. There's a, a German film that came out, a documentary about her called Beyond the Visible. Yes, yes. And I, I a, bought it right yeah, away. Yeah, you saw that. And it's a good documentary, although I have to say uh, about 30, 40 minutes in, they hadn't mentioned anything about seances right. or the high masters or channeling or anything. And then when it was finally mentioned it was kind of like, oh, that, that was kind of a trendy thing to do in the early 20th century, so, <laughs> which is sort of true, but sort of not really true. It was actually far more trendy in the early 19th century. And so I, I, honestly, I was kind of shocked by that. And I was like, well, this is great that, you know, Hilma, uh, uh, you know, the one thing that it did, which was very good, was it did recognize that for the better part of 
history, women artists have been pushed to the sidelines. They've yeah. been marginalized or not even uh, recognized at all. And Hilma Offklint is one of those artists who is extremely talented, who was uh, trying to reach out to other occultists at the time or other esotericists like um, uh, Rudolf Steiner and, and their circle and, you know, and, and was not taken seriously uh, or not taken as seriously as she should have been. Uh, but what it neglects to do is to talk about this other buried, forbidden aspect of her artwork, which is that she claimed that it was something that came to her during these experiments that she was holding with five other women artists who called themselves collective mind, where they would all hold um, seances together, and some of them would go into trances, and sometimes they would start working on one drawing at the same time, like all five women would be drawing this single drawing at the same time, and out of those experiences, she began to get images and messages from these beings that she claimed lived in some higher plane of existence uh, called uh, that she simply called the High Masters. Um, and that's a really important and interesting part of her life. And then they dictate this temple that she is going to build, and she decides she's going to build this temple. And a lot of her major abstract paintings, which she begins... Um, around 1906, I think it is, where she begins around 1906, uh, a lot of those come directly from this vision, this message that she receives to create this temple and create these paintings. And the occult aspect of that is often overrided a little bit by her relationship to abstract expressionism as laid out by Kandinsky or uh, to the importance of uh, her as a woman artist being neglected uh, by modern history. And all of those things are interesting to talk about. But unfortunately, I still see mediumistic art, you know, floundering a little bit. And actually, in preparation for this, I was like, oh, you know, I should put together a list of books to recommend to people to read. And I realized that really, with the exception of a catalog from the Paris Gallery uh, Halle Saint-Pierre, I really don't have any uh, definitive books on mediumistic art. There really has not been a substantial academic study of it or a text about it. There have been a lot of articles, um, and it's something I think that maybe skirts a little too close to the edges of the paranormal, which I'm fine with, but, yeah. you know... <laughs> uh, <laughs> I'm fine with it. And I think like I, I just saw recently in the latest Fortean Times, there's actually an article about the British mediumistic artist Georgiana Houghton, oh. who was just making abstract paintings, um, drawings, actually, uh, but abstract works of art uh, half a century before Hilma Ofklint. And she was also doing these in a trance, you yeah. know, and, and that article came out, but it's in the Fortean Times, which is great. Yes. You know, I'm glad that something... <laughs> out there you know but it still is not it's still fringe. totally finding its way into the journals i'm yeah. you know i'm one of very few people there are a few researchers out there and um you know there's some good websites that have collections and things mm. that you can explore that i think are great but it hasn't it hasn't fully break, broken through i think there's more of a popular interest in the culture and I see, and that's been going on for a while. Yeah. Um, you know, there, there was some, there was a good exhibit that was curated 
um, by a woman who's a writer and a curator, uh, Pam Grossman. You might know her. She wrote a book that is very popular called Waking the Witch recently. And if several years ago now, I think, gosh, I think it was a while ago, she had a show at the NYU gallery that was called The Language of the Birds. And it was a, just a survey of occult art. Uh, and that was a great show, but it kind of like happened. And, and it was great because it mixed contemporary artists with historical artists. And it would have contemporary artists like Jesse Bransford uh, and then more historical artists like Leonore Carrington or Austin Osmond Spare. And, you know, and that's great. Um, and that was a great show. And I just, and it was great, but a part of me was like, why aren't there more shows like this? You know, it just right. doesn't, just doesn't quite catch on exactly. It's just still a little too far out there, I think. Well, and even the, like, that's my response to that. Yeah. Well, and even like you said, like, it's not, the information isn't super accessible. I'm holding a book in my hand only because I work in a library, so I can get my, you know, hands <laughs> on any book in the world. But I'm holding a, a really nice hardcover book called World Receivers about Georgiana Haunt and oh. Hilma Afklin and Emma Kuntz. And it's a great book, but it's yeah. going to set you back 50 bucks or more if you want to pick it up. <laughs> so it's not something that someone's going to hop on Amazon and just be like the casual reader of stuff and go, oh, I want to read about this. Oh, I'm not buying that. That book's too expensive. And these do not Well, unfortunately, to those are the, you know, if you're getting a good art book, that is the prices. But I, I know what you mean, though. There's small independent publishing houses that put out a lot of these books. I would say Folger uh, Publishers in the UK have been putting out a lot of great books. A strange attractor press has been putting out a lot of good books on not just mediumistic art or occult art, but also lesser known uh, surrealist uh, artists. Um, strange attractor just put out a book um, by the writer, Amy Hale about the artist, Ithel Colquhoun, who was a uh, female surrealist artist from the mid 20th century. Who's, been you know about as forgotten as as could possibly be and mm -hmm. so it is nice to see some of these emerging coming out but it's still yeah it's these small independent publishers who are very you know small press you know there's no like fade on book you know it's gigantic coffee table book of like all the no. mediumistic art you know that that is yet to to come out unfortunately and well, um, and there's yet to be a, a major museum show or anything like that. And I don't know if, you know, I'm going to be the one who makes that happen. And I don't know who <laughs> is or when, the, if it's going to be my lifetime, I don't know. But that's where I, uh, you know. What's what's come to mind here for me, and I'm, I'm going to indulge yeah. in one of my interests just for a second here, but I think it yeah. it may apply to mediumistic art. Um Let's just say 30, 40 years ago when a band like Napalm Death started, and I'm sure you, you may know who Napalm Death is. If, if, if I'm not, familiar with yeah. them, yes. They're a great example um, when it comes to an art form that no one was ready for. It's <laughs> 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 an understatement. It right? Now, what I've said to, in a lot of conversations I've had, when it comes to art with people, I said, okay, I knew – that the world was changing when NPR has, they've done this now for the last four albums or five albums that this band's put out. And I'm talking recent albums, right? Uh, yeah. When NPR is, is premiering a publication like NPR is premiering the new napalm death record. <laughs> right. Um, it's, it's, it's funny. And I, and I chuckle when but I it's saw awesome, it too, though. but when I saw, but I'm, but I'm like, I'm tell people like, okay, it only took them about four decades, three or four decades to get there, <laughs> but 
people finally get it. Well, I think right. metal's been finally taken seriously well, some, yeah. and more and more. It's it's like on the fringe of just like what we're talking about with me and Mr. Kirk. That's Art. exactly what metal my point still is. sits on the fringe of everything. Yeah, and that's exactly and what people my point don't. Is, people yeah. are like, oh yeah, you know. I think that, I think this is the same scenario. And yeah, you just said it a second ago, Alessandro. It may not be in our lifetimes. It may not be in your lifetime where people go, oh, the light bulb just comes over everybody's head, and they go, oh my god, this is the coolest thing ever, right? Um, <laughs> It may not be that. Yeah, no, it'll be like like my kids will be going to school and they'll be like, oh, of course we've heard of Meaty Mystic Art. That's, yeah, <laughs> that's old, old news. And I'll be like, really? Like, no one told me about that, you know, when I was your age. Yeah. You know, and that kind of, yeah. I think, it, I, I it think made... that it is like that. I do feel like that. It is, it's like one of these things where it's very obscure and gradually the margins of things, the obscure stuff, eventually people will feel it out and, you know, it will become a little bit more popular. But it's hard to completely have it synthesized with a, uh, especially something that is as, um, you know, institutionalized for a very long time as the history of art and modern art. Yeah. The modern art is its own thing. Yeah, it, uh, yeah, it is. It's like Napalm Death, okay, so they appear on NPR or something, but they're not going to be playing it you know, Carnegie Hall or something. Oh, God, no. <laughs> no, I mean, they're... So that would be pretty sick. But... <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, I mean, they're... But, bare... you know, yeah, it's not going to totally go, you know, that far into the mainstream. No, oh, God, no. It'll, it'll never go that far. But just to see... Just to see a, a publication like NPR do something like that and actually do a write-up and say, well, the, the, the some of the textures that they've done this, and I'm like, what the hell is going on here? This is craziness. <laughs> this is, I mean, this is Napalm. But I mean, that whole idea, thats it makes me think about that whole, what mediumistic art is. And I think it is kind of in the same, yeah, you're right. It does, Like Amber said, it does kind of sit on the fringes like that too. Um, you know, one of the yeah. things, I want to step back a little bit because uh, you, you mentioned something mm. earlier and- you know, I I love just kind of just dancing in this speculative uh, area that we have been. Um, one of the things you mentioned earlier was this, um, and I call it the zone, right? Where it is mm -hmm. where a person, and maybe not just with art, I find myself getting into what I would call the zone uh, with my work, with a lot of things. Like if a project I'm trying to complete, something I'm trying to get done, uh, but especially when it comes to art too, um, I think there is that I, and you mentioned this before that some people may fall, you know, go into this. It, it may be some type of meditative state you go into, uh, the zone, mm -hmm. I would call it. Right. Uh, and, um, you know, I, this, the reason, this is the reason I say this, that I know people like this who are artists or they're, they're just creators. They're, they, they just do something right. And I've seen people that get mm. very, yeah. very, very agitated if they are interrupted, <laughs> for example, right? Uh, I mean, uh, because yeah. they, they may be in that zone, right? And I mean, and that just goes yeah. back to this whole idea of what, you know, what inspiration may be or what mediumistic art is. It, that, you know, if you finally tap into that and there you feel a fire kind of, or something warm inside of you burning and everything, your brain is moving at a million miles an hour, but everything is just kind of coming onto the paper or wherever, whatever you're doing. Right. Uh, and mm. that, that is what I would call that the zone. And I find myself getting into that a lot. Like I said, with, with, with whatever I do, um, is that something that, I mean, is that something you experience, I guess, with your work, Alessandro? 
Uh, yeah, it is. And actually, I feel uh, a little, uh, I, I recognize myself a little bit in what you're describing when you talk about getting agitated. I, <laughs> I definitely do have those moments where yeah. I'm, you know, I'm working on something and I get interrupted and it might, you know, set me off balance a little bit, you know, for the the, the rest of the day or something like that. Yeah. Um, but I do think, uh, I do think there are artists who work in a ecstatic state or in a um, expressive uh, moving kind of state or in a meditative state like I do quite often, uh, which is why my paintings take so long. Uh, you know, I, I go into this, you know, state where sometimes, you know, my mind goes completely blank and I'm just working on this one section of a painting for a very, very long time. Mm -hmm. uh, and I also think of artists uh, the artist I think of is the uh, occult artist from the early 20th century, Austin Osmond Spare, uh, okay. who was kind of a colleague of Aleister Crowley's, yeah. uh, though they had a falling out later. Uh, but he was much more interested in art and how to use meditative and occult practices towards harnessing something interesting from art. He, uh, Spare, is historically important because he predates surrealism and the uh, automatic drawing of the surrealists and the uh, delving into the subconscious of the surrealists by a couple of decades. And uh, Spare, I always find interesting because he would do these bizarre exercises in order to um, ha induce visions in himself. He would stare into a mirror for hours on end until his vision began to distort. Uh, he would make drawings with his head lying flat on the table so he could only see the drawing from the side and not actually look down on the whole composition. He would do all of these kind of strange meditative things in order to transform what he was creating, to challenge himself and create something different. And Spare's idea, and the idea that I think a lot of artists might recognize is that by, and, and in some ways this also relates to modern art in the terms of John Cage and the idea of indeterminacy and uh, John Cage doing these kind of chance operation experiments with music and uh, performance where he would just roll a dice and, you know, whatever the dice said, that would be the note that he would put down in a composition, things like that. Mm -hmm. um, but what Spare was getting at was that through these challenges and through these um, harsh meditative zones that he would put the mind in that once you get into that state, whether it's a flowing state or a tabula rasa kind of blank mind state or, you know, kind of a meditative state that possibly other forces or influences then would have an easier time working through you. Yeah. Uh, or you could channel these forces more easily. And yeah, it's almost like getting into the passenger seat uh, and letting something else, you know, take over um, and and steer the the car, you know. Uh, and I think that was somewhat of what Spare was about, though he also experimented with a lot of other uh, unusual occult practices related to art and so forth. Um, but I do think, like, Spare is an extreme example. I think there are less extreme examples. Uh, like an, another person who I think of is the very famous Jackson Pollock, uh, Jack the Dripper, mm. who would make these gigantic, uh, you know, drip paintings in his garage using a brush or a stick. 
and he would kind of dance around and, you know, of course he would be about six beers in while he was yeah. doing this and <laughs> he had a cigarette dangling from his lip and stuff. And so he was kind of using chemicals to get into an altered state, you know, in some way. Uh, but he would just be, you know, moving around and drifting and dripping and doing this in a way that he saw as being shamanistic or ritual. And one could argue that even though Pollock has been historically categorized as this artist who's all about form and all about materials and abex in America, abstract expressionism in America, someone could also make a point that Pollock was in some way trying to be a mediumistic artist, Absolutely. that he was trying to get to that zone. Absolutely. You know. Well, when when we yeah. talk about your art, I I watched that really great like I don't know if it was like a 12-minute documentary yeah, yeah, by yeah. Full Moon Oh Films. yeah, yeah, yeah. That was so fun. The matter and, of mind. Yeah, I loved this and I loved all the little I'd like to that's just a, that's about I have video. to say Yeah. Yeah, go ahead. I was really getting ready to be embarrassed by that. Uh but <laughs> um but John Viner and uh Brian Chidester did a really great they were the filmmakers who did that and uh, they did a really great job with it. I was actually not embarrassed by seeing myself. Yeah, no, no, it was really good. It oh, held your attention. Yeah, yeah it, it was really, really well done. <laughs> and what 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 gripped me was the moment. Well, first off, I because I look at all your stuff on Instagram. I love your little UFO casebook journals you made when you were ten years old. Oh yeah, yeah. And you're and yeah, you're just, writing I, yeah. down all of these different. I mean, did you find these? Obviously, there was newspaper clippings in the journals. Were you? reading books and just handwriting down stuff? Because, I mean, 1990, you were probably 10. Um, it's, <laughs> yeah. You know, printers yeah. and stuff is not an accessible thing. When I was little and I would see something in a book, I spent so much time handwriting things because I wanted to keep it, and that's how you how you did it. Yeah. Um, unless you went and made exactly a Xerox. That is exactly what I did. Oh, that's so yeah. cute. <laughs> that is exactly what I did. Uh, it was when I made that little journal, which I, I only briefly posted, but it's, it's you know, it's interesting because it's these – things from your childhood that you don't realize affect you so much. And then you go back to them and you're like, Oh, I might be, you know, we might channel our, our chai, our inner child as well, you know, but I, I went back to those and uh, I realized 1990, which was uh, 1991, which was about the time when I was making those books or that little journal uh, was right around the time or shortly after the Hudson Valley UFO sightings. And I grew up in Nyack, New York. Okay. So um, it's that book, Night Siege. I think Alan J. Hynek wrote that book. Yeah. Um, but that was, um, yeah, I think, uh, it's called Night Siege that came out about it. But I was a kid, and that was in our local Rockland County Journal News all the time, you know, or for a few weeks anyway, the, tri the photos of triangles of little what looked like little Christmas lights in the sky, you know, in a triangular formation. And, um, and I think that was partly what excited me about UFOs in oh, yeah. the late 80s, early 90s as a kid. Um, and also UFOs were just kind of everywhere in the air uh, with Whitley Strieber's yes. communion. Yes. I remember seeing that at the bookstore oh, and it terrifying. instantly gave me nightmares. <laughs> <laughs> that so, image on the cover oh, yeah. definitely was burned into my mind. And, uh, you know, and the X-Files, of course, came out shortly after that. And, um, and yes, you're right. Like, you know, I couldn't buy books and I don't know. I think I had a library card, but I was frustrated that I could only take, you know, four books out at a time. <laughs> so 
I actually would go to the library, I would Xerox what I could, and then most of that book is me hand transcribing yep. <laughs> um, UFO reports from different books, from different writers. Um, I just was so obsessed with it, and I wanted to have this collection of things. And there's some uh, articles, there's one article in there from when Unsolved Mysteries came to our town oh, to film cool. the segment about the Hudson Valley UFO sightings. So, Did yeah, you, have that kind of dates seen, that. Have you ever seen anything unusual in the skies? Um, yeah, actually. <laughs> um, I wonder if uh, the friends of mine from high school will remember this. Um, I actually, I should say, I've had a lot of, we can talk about paranormal encounters because I actually had a lot of weird things happen to me over the years, which I think is another reason why I've become so fascinated by mediumistic art, because I'm a little open to the idea that these things could actually happen. But when I was very, very young, I twice broad daylight saw on two different occasions, this kind of silver egg like form. One time it was in a friend's backyard and another time it was over the Hudson River, and I had a couple of friends who saw it at the time. A very strange thing. Honestly, it's hard for me to mm, verify how legitimate it was because I was so young. Mm -hmm. That memory has now faded. You know, I'm 40 years old now, so it's enough time has passed. I must have been, I don't know, uh, you know, eight, eight to 10 to 12 years old, maybe, I don't know, sometime around there. Yeah. So it's just faded. And it's like one of those things you look back on it and you're like, yeah, that was weird. But you can't quite say, well, you know, I might've just seen a blimp or something like that. And <laughs> you know, nowadays I would have definitely thought they were a drone or something. Yeah. Like that, but, yeah. <laughs> so you can't tell what you're seeing, but yeah. So um, definitely the UFO encounters and, I will say I also had some, since we're on a ghost, a ghostly talk, you know, yeah. uh, I did have some ghost encounters, actually, that oh, I really? should probably mention sure. um, in the house at my grandmother's house where I grew up, actually. Um, there was uh, some unusual sounds and, oh, gosh, actually, you know, I'd say the weirdest thing that happened was one day... Uh, my grandmother, I was sitting with her downstairs. My mother was in the kitchen and we heard on the top of the stairs what sounded like beads dropping and hitting the floor and scattering. And then we could actually hear the beads, almost like glass beads or hard plastic beads, go click, 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 click down the stairs. And my mom's like, Al, can you go, you know, clean that up or whatever? <laughs> so I go expecting to see beads on the stairs and there's nothing there. And then I go upstairs on the landing and there's nothing there. And I look in the bathroom, nothing had fallen. There's no origin of where the bead dropping sound came from, but it was so loud and it was so clear and everyone in the house heard it. So that was just one of those strange things that happened in that house. Um, oh, and the reason I mentioned that is I found out that there is actually a phenomenon called a bead dropping phenomenon. Uh, I'll have to look that up though. Yeah, <laughs> I, I gotta look that wasn't up. expecting to talk about it. Yeah. That's um, yeah, and there was another down. thing too. At yeah. 10 p.m. every night, our attics we had a winding attic staircase, and there would be creaks on the stairs as if someone was hmm. walking up the stairs at 10 o'clock every yeah. night. I don't know. I don't know what it could be. I love that. Yeah. Well, when you were when you were a teenager, y you decided to take some LSD. 
Yes. And this is the <laughs> that reason. That is in that documentary, yes. yeah. And, and this intrigued me because there's a reason yeah. why I am hesitant to ever try anything like that or even something like shrooms because I feel like every nightmare I've ever had is going to come happen in like one minute. The great, that cover of Whitley Strieber's <laughs> Communion, he's going to be in the corner. There's going to be something else from some other movie over here. Like, I am just going to lose it and then I'm going to have to go to the hospital and they're going to be like, what? And yeah. So you have, though, yeah. kind of a, a, a weird experience. Can you share this? Because you said it helped shape kind of how you you saw the universe yeah. from that point on. Yeah, and I think uh, psychedelic drugs are something to definitely talk about in relation to mediumistic yeah. art because I think psychedelic drugs, like just like mediumship and trance states and things like this, they give us some insight into the way the mind works and the potentials of the mind. And psychedelic drugs may offer some glimpse of where the state of mind that mediumistic artists go into really comes from because under the influence of drugs when i was a teenager i you know haven't i don't have the time to do those sorts of things anymore (laughs) but you know it's you know long long ago when i you know had more time on my hands um you know under those states i definitely did feel an alien presence or an alternate presence. And, and I did try it a few different times, much more when I was a teenager, um, which probably explains a few things about a few quirks about me, I guess. <laughs> but, you know, um, it, it's, I, I would also say that, um, you know, I wouldn't say that my experience, the experience that I had then was really interesting. That was just one really profound experience and what had happened was I was with friends and I had taken a, a large amount of LSD and suddenly felt this desire. I was going to climb up this dark hill and go up onto this hill and climb inside these thorny bushes uh. and just sit, lay there and stare up at the stars. You know, and this is, you know, Nyack is a town, but there's a lot of areas where you can see the stars. There isn't a lot of light pollution. Yeah. And suddenly I had it almost um, projected into my mind or I don't know. I was kind of in between the physical and the, and the in-physical, the uh, disembodied. And I could suddenly see this map of how everything was being created in the universe. And I sensed this or sensed and also saw in a kind of diagrammatic way there is this kind of funnel of energy coming from one universe and a funnel of energy coming from another universe. And somehow they were mingling in the center, like, um, you know, gases being put into a beaker or something like that. And that was what was creating our existence, our material plane. But what I also realized was that these weren't just energies or materials. These were actually, um, words or communications from two different uh like cosmic intelligences uh cosmic beings and they were speaking to each other through this energy and we were actually the language we existed as the language of the message that they were sending to each other we were existing in the center and this message was so complex it was actually giving rise to our universe and then somehow i just kind of like snapped back into my self and I was like, Oh, you know, what do I do now? And, you know, and it was LSD. So it lasted for another 10 hours. Yeah. This is the very beginning. of Um, You got a little while left. (laughs) Oh my goodness. (laughs) Um, But, you know, uh, 
I also had other experiences too. There was one that was very frightening where I was in the woods with some friends and we found a, uh, a, a teepee that someone had erected in the woods. And we were like, Oh, this is a good place to sit in the dark at night and, you know, take drugs and stuff like that. And I suddenly found myself, you know, after some time, after a long period of time, yeah. and I had also taken a very large amount. I won't go into it, but uh, I found myself like yanked from out of my body not yanked, actually. No, that's, that came later, actually. Um, I actually found myself standing behind myself. Mm. And I suddenly like realized, like, oh, I'm out of my body. I'm not in my physical self. And I'm looking at myself in this teepee in the dark with my friends around a flashlight. And then suddenly, then I was like pulled into the air or into the woods or something like that. And in this immaterial state was kind of like swimming around in trees and grass and in the ground and stuff. And then suddenly I plunged into this place that was completely dark and void and had no up or down. This is a scary story. I know. Uh, but I've had other, I've talked to other people who've had a similar experience and I was in this void space and I really thought like, Oh my God, did I just die? Did I just you know kill myself or something? And as soon as the panic hit that I might have died, I suddenly, like a rubber band was being pulled back, flew right back into myself and came to in this TP with my friend. Not came to, but realized I was back in the physical body. Yeah. And, um, and then I was like, just panicking. I was like, guys, I got to get out of here. I got to get out of here. And I stood up and I walked out of the woods into this field uh, and just laid down in this field and was like, until my uh, heart rate you know, went back to normal. And um, I can't say that those experiences, though, directly influenced my artwork, the visual qualities of my artwork. Okay. But they're, you know, they're experiences, they're life experiences that you find communicate with whatever it is that you're creating or doing. So I do reference back to those when I'm either working, you know, researching the topic of mediumistic art and studying it, and I hear about these experiences of altered states from people like, uh, you know, Hilma Offklint or, um, you know, or William Blake, and I and I can kind of understand them a little bit from the inside, a little because of those experiences, and I also think that looking at um, my paintings. I also find this kind of, um, I also find this, uh, this message within my work that seems to resonate. It somehow charts onto my paintings some extra meaning that I, I suddenly am aware of. Uh, if that makes sense. Yeah, it, <laughs> it does. And there's definitely something that comes out of your paintings. Because like I said at the beginning of the show, when I first looked at, at I, I forget which one I saw. Um, I, I can't remember which one I saw first on, on Instagram. But I just stopped. And normally I, I, I don't do that with art. I mean, I love art. But there's not sometimes a piece that just makes me stop and well, stare I, I think hard there, I think at it. And I ran up to yeah. you that night, Scott, and I was like, look at this guy's art. Look at this yeah, guy's art. Yeah. I sent it to like two <laughs> friends. I'm like, check this out. And then I think shortly after that, you had posted another painting that was somewhat mm. new. And I, I wrote the – I where did I write it down? Um, it was um, – shoot, it was – you had just – oh, 
Nope, D- that's not it. Dig, Amber. Dig. I know. I'm looking at my dig. notes. But anyway, I had commented yeah, yeah. right away on Instagram and said, I feel so much better looking at this. And <laughs> you were like, that was like the, the point or that was the that's what I was hoping for. And yeah. I think then I looked at the – oh, I got it here. It was called Brighter Tomorrow. And I didn't even oh, yeah. see the title. I just looked at the painting and yeah. was like, oh. I figured that was the one you were talking about. Yeah. <laughs> and I just instantly yeah. felt calmed. And th- there's just something about it. Like it's it's a very interesting mm-hmm. thing. Of course, we're gonna we're gonna share all this stuff on our social media and, yeah. and website. And we're gonna yeah, like yeah, for push sure. this. I'll push this all week, every day, daily. Keegan, like you're gonna get something. <laughs> like you know, some picture. Well, I think there. I think there's. You know, from my experience, you know, there's art that you appreciate, and there's tons of art that I appreciate. I see. Oh, that's very nice. I like that. But then there's art that you do do that double take and yeah. you and you observe. And you truly want to experience it, whatever it may be, right? It's it, it's something that you want to dive more mm-hmm. into. I mean, there's again, I think there's a lot of stuff that I see and go, that's very nice. Nice job. Cool. Great. You know, but then there's stuff you see like Amber's talking about with your work and myself also that I'm like, this requires more attention. Let's, let's, let, let's observe this. Let's experience what's going on here. And I think that's what makes, well, you know, go ahead. Oh yeah, no. I uh, I want you to finish. I, I no, that's, that's really all I had to say. <laughs> so, <laughs> no, and it's it's great. I I uh, I think uh, your experiences are what I want to have. Um, and uh, Amber, getting back to what you said um, uh, about you, like oh, I felt so much better when I looked at this yeah. work. Yeah. What's interesting is. I felt the same way about that work, which is why it's mm. interesting to me. And I have to say that, you know, because I like to say I go into a trance state or a mediumistic state or anything like that, but I do go into a deeply meditative state when I'm working to the point where the painting that I'm making and what I'm doing, I do feel alien to it. It does feel alien to me. It, it uh, gets to a point where... I feel like I'm looking at something that is coming from another hand or another place. And that's, that's kind of like when I know I'm, I'm doing the right thing. That's when I know it's good. And I'm like, Oh, okay, I can finish this one. And so with that piece, the brighter tomorrow, the title actually came to me because when I finished the painting and I knew it was finished, I stepped away from it. I didn't quite know what I was going to feel from it. I didn't know what I was going to experience when I looked at it or I didn't have any expectations. You know, I had this uh, vague diagram that I drew on the canvas and then began working on it, you know, an inch at a time. And then when I stepped away from it, I was like, somehow I feel optimistic about this. And that's, and the title brighter tomorrow came to me because I was like, I don't know. There's just something optimistic about this. I don't know what it is, but there's a language to these forms and colors that are, that is communicating that. To yeah. Me. Yeah. Um, and it's not something I intended in the sense that I, uh, you know, devised that that was how it's going to look at the end. But I had this almost the same experience, you know, actually when I stepped away from it. Um, and I, you know, I will say a little bit about my artwork right now. It's something that, you know, I've been painting for many, many years. Um, I really, I think, started hitting my stride with paintings maybe only about, well, I've been making paintings for a long time, but I, I started really coming together for me maybe only about five or six years ago. And a lot of the imagery that I've been doing now, I've been doing for a while, but it 
took a long time for me to put the pieces together and find the right way to do it. And uh, some of it came from experimenting with not drugs, but meditation and different kinds of rituals. Uh, I became very interested in the philosophical aspects of Austin Osmond Spare's work and the more aesthetic aspects of artists like Hilma Ofklint or Franischek Kupka or Kandinsky who were using abstract languages to talk about metaphysical things that were beyond this world and beyond our ability to, uh, you know, talk about in a literal empirical kind of way. And so those early modern artists, those early abstract artists were very instrumental and from automatic drawings and from uh, meditative experiments, I began to put together this language of imagery that became what I do today and what I've been doing for a few years. So that's where those works come from. And generally, you know, when people ask me, well, what do they mean? What are you doing? What is this supposed to be? It's very, you know, difficult for me to explain that because it's not really something tangible or material. I generally just say it's a abstract language that talks about mystical things and uh, cosmic things, what I call my mystical science, you know, uh, that is my own cosmology. Um, And it's all of those things. It's LSD trips when I was a teenager. It's my (laughs) love of mediumistic art. It's Mm -hmm. reading, you know, Emanuel Swedenborg. It's it's all of those influences. It's a sum of Um, everything, yeah. yeah. Hand scribing UFO encounters in the library. That's really where, yeah. Not not one of the UFOs when I was a kid, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Well, Alessandro, um, I have to say we're both we're both big fans, and oh my god, uh, uh, we could talk for hours. I, I know we could, uh, and and we're really we're really happy, and we're really honored to have you here too. Thanks for we really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us tonight. Well, thank you so much. I really enjoyed talking to you, and I got a lot out. It was very cathartic. Ghostly talk. <laughs> <laughs>